You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Rabbi Dr. Gidon Rothstein. Now, any of you who have followed me have certainly have some familiarity with that name. He was my partner in the written uh, Parsha Divrei Torah that appears on the Jewish press that I constantly speak about and that we're going to speak about and mention again today. Uh, Rabbi Rothstein, uh, among many more important accolades, uh, participated with me in that for a number of years. Uh, besides that, Rabbi Rothstein is a noted writer. He's written six books. We discussed earlier this afternoon, this, he's up to uh, six, and he's got two in the pipeline, so uh, you can look for him in the Library of Congress or at your um, local Jewish bookstore. Amazon, of course, I'm sure, uh, carries all of the books. Um, he's also a, a serious thinker about uh, Jewish thought, uh, halakha, a number of issues of importance to the Jewish people. So I'm going to start by welcoming you. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, I'm going to ask you uh, an easy question to begin with. Um, I, I sent him an advanced copy of my Dvar Torah where um, I speak about the importance of dissent. And, and I think one of the things that I uh, like the most about Rabbi Rothstein is his willingness to be the person who dissents. Um, it's not an easy position. Uh, you get a lot more flack than you get accolades for disagreeing and taking strong positions. But um, you've been willing to do that, and you probably have uh, at least as much experience as I do in that, in that field. So, uh, I don't know, is this something you imagine you would, a role you imagine you would play uh, growing up when you were in yeshiva, when you were starting your career? Such a hard question. He said it's an easy one. They said about Willie Mays, he used to make the hard catches look easy. <laughs> I make the easy questions look hard. I don't mean to do that. And when you talk about that, I dissent a lot. I don't dissent on purpose. It's a compulsion. So it's a whole different thing as well. I never. I was always, I think, not on the beaten path. You know, in Yeshiva. I went to Yeshiva at Gush. So there I was closer to the beaten path. But I got to YU and I... It's hard. It's hard when you see things that out of love you need to say this could be better or this is wrong and then you could have both and uh and to pick the moments and to pick the way to do it like if you think about the parasha i think the key things in this parasha the next parasha isn't the descent that was the problem i think it was the manner of the descent you never find in, in chumash i think about it a lot you never find the jewish people come to moshe rabbeinu and say we have a problem what do you think the solution should be Right? They come and they complain after, and you think, it's, at what point do you think when he saves them from the Makat Bechorot, when they get out of Egypt, when they get through the sea, when they get the food, at what point would they pause and say, he solved a lot of problems before? So when it comes to dissent, I think it's a question of when do you see something that needs to be spoken up about? And then how do you speak up about it? But a lot of people just don't like the fact that they're speaking up. Sure. And... Let me let me follow up. Given that this has happened a number of times in your life, what would you say was your experience that you felt the best about, maybe in terms of success or maybe not in terms of success, but filling a place where nobody else was speaking, where there was a need to speak? Hmm, that's a hard question. Where's the place that I felt that I spoke up 
And people liked the fact that I spoke. Well, up. you liked it. <laughs> I, so it's funny because you had warned me that maybe you were going to ask me about my favorite book, and that's a harder question of its own. But it happens to me when I came out with my first book was a novel that I wrote based on a, a speech I had given in a shul that I was working in as a rabbi. It's a novel set in the time of Third Beit Hamikdash. I felt the best there because people actually said things like, I never thought in these terms before. And that felt like I had pushed the conversation in a way, and that got the most positive feedback of any of the books that I've written. That it, And I think partially because it was a novel, so it was less threatening, but it pushed people, although it was interesting how many people said to me, if that's what Yomoto Mashiach, if that's what the Messianic year is going to look like, I don't know if I want to be there. It's fascinating to watch. Anyway, so that's a whole conversation of its own. But yeah, so I think that's probably the time when I felt like I had hit that sweet spot the best. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you what, which one of your books is your favorite, although maybe you've already given it away. Um, I would never. <laughs> sorry? I would never. You have a whole series of interviews. I would never jump well, the gun. Okay, no, it sounds like uh, you gave I a like big, big... I like that book very much. But I'm going to tell you what my favorite book, and I actually reviewed it, you may remember, okay. uh, were Missing the Point, where you argued for a more ideological orthodoxy, moving away from sociology, what's being called orthoprax. Um, it's interesting because we're sitting here in Israel and as we're speaking, there's some interesting events going on. I don't know how much you're following the news, but um, it could be next week. I mean, the announcement may be tomorrow that Israel will have its first kippah wearing pres- uh, prime minister in its history. Um, so perhaps we should be excited about that, but I personally am not. Um, partly because I've subscribed to your thesis about an ideological orthodoxy. Um, and I've seen Naftali Bennett, who's uh, the man with the kippah, who is up for the position, with seven seats out of 120, but that's another story. Or is it eight seats? Remarkable. Uh, it a, really is. As a political matter. It's incredible. It's a remarkable It's incredible. Feat. But uh, be that as it may, uh, I find myself less excited about it than I would like to be. Uh, precisely because I feel he represents exactly that sort of sociological orthodoxy that uh, you wrote against. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I know that Rav Shagar, I don't know if you're, you like Rav Shagar, you dislike Rav Shagar, we've never spoken about him as far as I recall, um, but he's, he spoke about having Judaism in the Kishkas, uh, about uh, a notion of, of, of doing Judaism as opposed to thinking Judaism. Um, and there's certainly something he said for that as well. So I just wanted to get your your response to, to these various things that we've thrown out about <laughs> Naftali Bennett, Orthoprax, Rav Shagar. You can... Let me say, let me, let me start from here. <laughs> a long time ago, I think it was like the Siyam Hashas before this past, you know, maybe two ago, like 2008 maybe, I wrote an article about how Dafyomi was bad. I still believe that. <laughs> I've also started teaching a Dafyomi Shir since the last cycle started. So I say that because you learn things in life. And, uh, and as, as you said, there's certainly value to knowing the theology and being involved in theology, being involved in a relationship, even not theology like as a philosophical matter, but living a life in service of God as an awareness matter. And it's certainly true that just the idea, well, I just have to do a lot of these things is a challenge. And at the same time, it's a better state of events than if somebody's not going to do anything. And, and that balance and working that balance and being able to welcome 
the good for what it is while still working for the better and the best, I think is an important uh, piece of how my thinking has sort of evolved over the years. So when I think about those questions about Antony Bennett, I agree with you. And I think that, and I don't, I, you know, there's a long tradition of people who don't live in Israel should not comment on Israel, and I largely subscribe to that. But watching the machinations, it hasn't been so exciting to me. Whether or not I think it's good for Israel, Naftali Ben, I don't know enough to know about that. But it's been so political. And that, it doesn't sit well with me. On the other hand, right, if Prime Minister, who at least, even in theory, uh, subscribes to ideals and things that we care about. Even in theory, I think it's probably largely, largely, maybe not, but largely a good thing. So it's that kind of a balance. I think in all these questions that you were raising is how you how you do that. How do you make clear? How do you make? So I, somebody was commenting about an educator that I know, but I'm in his yeshiva, wherever it is. He's not confident they make sure that the kids stay attached to religion, even though he'd very much like to. And he was talking about some other place not by name, but he said that they come out, he doesn't think they know very much, but they're going to be attached forever. So that's a challenge too. So this, I think these are key issues and key problems, the part living life in a, in a successful way. And if you told me I'm going to live a life where I'm ideologically pure, but nobody around me will get the message. So that when we talk about Murder in the Mikdash, which is the novel, one of the things about it was that it stimulated actual thinking and actual grappling in those words. If I wrote a book that said you have to be this way, and everybody said, well, I'm not going to be that way. It would be less than, even if it could be exactly right, it would be less than yael, less than uh, effective. Effective. That's the word I was looking for. So let me um, sort of respond something that I'm hearing in the background, which I relate to as well. I think um, many intellectuals relate to, and especially rabbis who are also intellectuals, um, the, the, the idea of somehow presenting something that's true and real that is um, appealing mm-hmm. and works for the masses. Mm-hmm. And that tension is, is a difficult one. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you're a student of the Rambam Maimonides. I mean, someone who um, dealt with that on some level, but created sort of a difficult precedent, a sort of rather elitist precedent um, that has its followers. I mean, Rav Dessler, uh, mm-hmm. from one, is, is known in more uh, recent to mm-hmm. our generation about when speaking that basically there's a tradition that we're working for creating the top and everybody else is sort of there for the ride and not so much uh, to do anything in of themselves. So I don't know if you've thought about that, um, but certainly in light of the comments you just made, that's something that struck my mind. I don't know what you... Absolutely. So I, I was struck by, I once upon a time wrote a PhD about commentaries on Pirkei vote. It's a long, long time ago, but I remember a little bit of Pirkei vote because of it, which is a, a good result. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things that there's a Mishnah, I forget who says it, in Pirkei vote that talks about that if somebody is lomed al milat lilamed, if you learn to be able to teach, zochel l'moru lamed. If you learn to perform, to learn and to teach and to observe and to keep. And it stays with me a lot. The, so I, I'm not against the Rambam at all. I'm not sure that that's accurate about the Rambam because Professor Tversky, Allah Shalom, used to, I only heard him give classes for two years and I heard it many times from him stressed that the Rambam always says, when he talks about anything that's elitist, he always throws in the phrase, kifi kocho according to the person's abilities. So, to quote somebody less, uh, 
known as an intellectual, Mordechai and David were talking about no Jew being left behind. <laughs> so I think that the, I think that the goal really is to find a way to educate each at his level and his way to move them along the next step. Everybody has the next step. What's the next step for each? So that's what I'm. I that's what I strive for in whatever I do, and that's what I think we should be striving for. We do need the greats. Although I want sort of, if I have a second, I had an unbelievable story about I forget who I. I forget who it was. I forget the name. Somebody's starting yeshiva, and he goes to somebody else, like a more senior Torah scholar. He's going to start a yeshiva. The guy says, who's the yeshiva going to be for? He says, for the, for the mitsuyanim, for the excellent students. And the response was, you only have a yeshiva for the mitsuyanim, for the excellent students. Where are you going to get the next from Yitzchak Elchanan Specter from? <laughs> Which is remarkable. Yitzchak Specter was the chief respondent of his time, and whoever was saying was openly saying, and he wasn't so amazing. So, so I think that's a very. I think I think it's important to to reach for the top, as well as to reach for the middle. To reach to the bottom. Everybody should find their place in their in their way. Beautiful. That's what I think. For very nice, beautiful. Um, I'm still going to ask you about your favorite book, but not okay. yet. <laughs> I have one more question Let before, it before we get to that. Let it percolate. Um, and that is, um, a, a number of years ago, um, there had been some moves by. Um, YCT, Shivat Choveh Torah, that prompted you to um, draw red lines, so to speak, and, and put them off limits. I, I know that uh, that's been an issue for many people in modern orthodoxy. Where, where are the limits, and, and specifically in terms of that yeshiva, whether they're still within or without. Um, I know a number of years, uh, uh, years ago I wrote an open letter as well which actually was responded to very, very nicely, uh, not just by YCT, but also by Yeshiva University, responded to that letter. Uh, one of the senior people there was in contact saying, well, what about us? <laughs> mm. um, we're still around. And, uh, but, but, uh, but I'm curious, as to, because I you know, have, still have a relationship with people there and um, you know, am, am concerned both in terms of the potential that's there in, in that yeshiva as well as the dangers that exist in terms of uh, possibly going too far. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about that yeshiva today and specifically, um, what would it take for them to go back, uh, retrace themselves and put themselves in your good graces and... and uh, have that line. Let's just be clear. I'm pretty sure the Yeshivat Chovetora doesn't care about my good graces, and I'm not saying they need to. I also should say very clear that I have not kept track of Yeshivat Chovetora. People have spoken to me over the years as if I'm out there, you know, eagle-eyeing everything to find out what I could be against. It's untrue. I don't know what's going on in there. It could be that they're already in a very different place. That I don't know that. I know many of the people who work there. I like them very. I like some of the people who work there. I don't know all the people who work there. I don't mean, the ones who work there who I know. I pretty much like. At the time, at the time, I believe the red line for me was at the time was that Avi Weiss had promised the RCA he would not make women rabbis in Shivat Maharat, and then he did. So, the the status of women and rabbin and 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 roles is changing rapidly. And in Israel, it's probably even more farther along than it was in America. And so how you navigate that, I think, is an interesting question. I think there are things that, I, there are, there are things that I'm comfortable with, there are things that I'm co- uncomfortable with, but I would live with, and there are things that I'm comfortable with and I wouldn't live with all over the world. So with YCT, when they started out, when they started out, I actually 
applied there for a job, and that was a whole story <laughs> of its own. And then eventually they became uncomfortable with the things they were doing, but I thought I could live with it. And this was a clear example. There were others. There were examples where there was a time when they had a conversation. I don't know if it was a public conversation, but I had heard about it, where they weren't willing to say that if a kid said, Torah's not me, Sinai, that you couldn't be part of the yeshiva. And then they had an unfortunate event with a kid who was good. Anyway, so they've, they've had unfortunate things along the way, but I'm not watching them. At the time, what happened was, that there was something where somebody was going back on something that had been, had been defined as a red line of orthodoxy in that moment in that time. They violated, the, 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 their, so I spoke to somebody once who said, they're not us, the Hebrews. So I said, your house in their building. You have to say something. All the time you have to say something, they refuse to. So the answer is, I just have this continuing feeling, and I live in Riverdale, so I have not seen evidence that it has changed. So I think the answer is, it's like any example of, if somebody has gone out, what they need to get back. They need to say, we went out for this and this reason. We now recognize that was incorrect. We want to come back in. You have to want to be part of it. And I don't think they wanted to be part of it. I think they got off a lot. I think they've done enough on their own. So, a completely different story. I once had a conversation many years ago with somebody who worked at Yeshivat Maharat. Who said, you don't know the place. You should come. It's a from place. I said, fine, I'll come. I said, but... I, I, so, I looked up after he said this. I, again, don't track these things. I looked at the curriculum. So, the curriculum is exactly a smicha curriculum for men, rab, male rabbis. So, I wrote him again. I said, I can still come, but... I want you to know that I think it's a poor choice because I think the Smicha curriculum for men isn't a great curriculum. So here you are, you're creating something. You could have created something else that could have produced learned women and said these are learned women leaders in the Jewish community. And instead you chose to adopt that. I don't see why you would do that. I never heard from him again. So, so the answer is you have to want to be part of it. I don't know if they do. I think they feel comfortable where they are. So I hope that's that I think that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, 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 I'm not sure if it's false memory, but I... I think I may have had the exact same conversation with mm-hmm. one of the leaders at Yeshiva Maharat. Uh, in my old days when I was trying to change uh, Smicha curriculum, right. um, which I, I agree is, is, is uh, sort of ridiculous in terms of what pulpit rabbis need, in terms right. of Lamdanim need, it's, it's, it's so an antiquated... I'm here, I'm hearing about there are these outreach kololim that give Smicha, and I think they may do more of that kind of thinking about it. And oddly enough, the Rabbanut Smicha isn't terrible. Right? They tell you, you learn these four areas of halacha well, and then you know the halacha you need to know. That's not a terrible right, model right, right. if you supplement that. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that Shabbat is there is already right. a big step, Absolutely. Uh, an important step. If, if, uh, well, it, not only that, it's Shabbat and then Kashrut, and then you have to have two other things. You have to have right. Nida and... Right? It's just not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So, okay, we're, we're just about out of time. We're actually over time, our usual time, but... This is such an interesting conversation that we'll ask one more question and then we'll... So if you're still listening at this point, you should email us to let us know that overtime worked out okay for you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You want more. Just tell us we want more. Uh, Rabbi Ronstein, so what is your favorite book that you've written and why? <laughs> it's funny. When you asked me that, I was reminded of, I once heard a tape many years ago of Jerry Seinfeld. At the end of one of his concerts, he took questions from the audience and they said to him, what's your favorite Seinfeld episode? He said, it's like breathing. Your most recent one is your favorite one. Anyway, I think it's more like children, where you all you love them all. Some of them are more successful, some of them are less successful. <laughs> Given that, I mentioned Murder of the Mikdash. It's certainly true that I like that very, very much. I, liked, I really did like all of them. I think you, I agree with you that we're missing the point, is a, what I hope a contribution to Jewish thought and to Jewish ideas about things. And then in my Pesach book, I felt like, in working on it, I produced 
I, I came across ideas about Pesach and a framing of the Exodus story that I did not really, and I had always been involved in Pesach all throughout my life, thank God, that I really hadn't uh, focused on as much. And I thought it, it, it expanded my own, let alone any reader's, vision of the role of the Exodus in the Jewish life and in the Jewish way of approaching the world. I think those three are probably the wonderful. Wonderful, thank you. And when you write into us, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.